Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Classical podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Talking Classical podcast and you'll receive a notification every time a new episode is released. You can also follow the Talking Classical podcast on Twitter, on the Talking Classical blog and on Facebook and YouTube. Many thanks for listening once again. I hope that you'll be able to join me for the next episode very soon. Welcome back to another episode of the Talking Classical podcast with me, Annabelle Lee. Today, we're talking to internationally acclaimed conductor Michael Seal. Michael is currently the associate conductor of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra and recently, during the lockdown period, has started a new podcast called A Mic on the Podium, a series of fascinating conversations with his conductor colleagues in which he talks to them about the art of conducting, their journey into music and also just being really open about their experiences of the conducting profession themselves. Please do go and have a listen if you haven't done so already. In this podcast, Michael talks to me about his podcast and his inspiration for conducting the conversations. We also talk about how Michael has been using this free time, the art of conducting and his own journey into conducting and share some really helpful advice as well. For those of you who are regular listeners to A Mic on the Podium, I think that you're going to find this a really fascinating discussion hearing from the other side of the table. And many thanks to Michael for taking the time to talk to me for this podcast. Please enjoy listening to this discussion. How have you been finding this lockdown period, though, obviously with the podcast, with the rest of your time? I mean, have you found that this is a, a good time to take stock and to, to be creative or to rest? Never have any problems resting. Being creative is interesting, actually. I was a lot more creative before this hit. Um, huh. I, I used to be a joint first study composer and I'd sort of started composing again since this hit. And I don't think this has got anything to do with the podcast which I'll come back to in a minute. Mm. I've done nothing creatively at all. I usually have a pile of scores on my desk that need marking up, or I'm learning, or there are projects ahead of me. Once they started disappearing one by one by one, and the scores were being put back on the shelf, I just stopped looking at scores. And I know I'm not the only conductor who's been like this. And so... Uh, even not even really listening to that much music. Um, you know, if I get in the car at all, you know, there's music on in the car, but other than that, I'm not really doing anything like I would normally do. You know, my day-to-day routine is so dominated by music, either studying it or listening to it or learning it or conducting it or listening to it or whatever. It's, it is almost felt like a holiday from it completely. But I think the bigger thing is that so much of what we do when we're studying and learning is deadline-led. Mm. Um, that with no deadlines in the diary. I mean, I, I have dates in the diary. I have dates from September onwards. But as we sit here right now on June the 12th, I have no idea whether I'm going to be doing those dates. Um, mm. So it's so deadline-led that uh, I just, <laughs> I've just sort of paused and stopped, almost in shock, as if to say, well, you know, do I need to learn that? 40-minute symphony I've never conducted before for a, for a concert I may or may not do. Exactly. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's tough. Uh, and going back to the podcast, once I got the idea to start it, then pretty much every waking minute of daylight, daytime work hours is spent 
on it. It was spent building the web page in the first place, designing logos, working out how to use GarageBand, lining up people to be to interview, and now it's up and running. It's I'm either interviewing or editing or publishing, and and it's non-stop. I've just finished editing this morning, episode twenty-five. I've got five more to edit, and I've got five in the diary, which takes me to episode thirty-five, which is wow. past Christmas. I think. <gasps> you know, so it, it, it yeah, it, it it just takes a lot of time to do it, and I'm loving it. You know, it's not what I'm trained to do, but you know, I'm loving it as a as a very nice mental diversion. Yeah, no, I can I can totally relate to that. I honestly didn't envisage doing a podcast, say, two years ago. I don't know whether you can relate to this, but if I'm not, you know, making the podcast or editing, I love listening to other podcasts as well. So. Well, it, interesting. Up until this point, uh, I'm not sure I've listened to another podcast all the way through ever before. Yeah, now. that's right. Yeah. Um, then by starting it, obviously, then you, you know, I listened to some of the highest ranking podcasts in the world to see what they did. Uh, listen to other classical music podcasts, see what they did. And, there, and since then, others have appeared. One in particular that's run by a, a very old friend of mine. And so, yeah, now I'm listening. I now have a set list of podcasts I listen to. My phone bings when a new episode comes out. Yeah, and yeah it's a new thing. Yeah. yeah. Have you got any favourite podcasts at the moment that you're enjoying listening to? Oh, I don't know whether I've got any favourites. Um, I sort of dip in and out of them. Or ones um, that you've been listening to at the moment. What have you been listening to recently? Well, the one that my, my old friend Tommy Pearson is, is doing, which is called The Classical Top Five, um, oh, okay. which is a... Uh, basically a discussion show uh, and each week there's a, li- a top five so the, the last one was top five British symphonies with Sir Mark Elder on which you know oh, I had wow. an interesting because because I'd not long interviewed Mark Elder myself for my podcast so um yes yeah, so, I mean uh, the, so the yeah, it's, it's a different t- topic each week the basically it's an excuse to talk through your your loves and passions and favorites um of whatever the subject is one week it was pianist one week it was cellist uh, with a different guest every week. Um, so, yeah, I listen to that, uh, you know, partly out of loyalty, partly out of the fact that, um, you know, the guests are very interesting. I know, I know two of the three regular panellists very well and I'm always interested in what the guest says. I think, you know, the, the frustrating thing as a, somebody who's doing a classical music podcast is it costs money uh, and energy and time to get a license to play any of the music that you're talking about, which mm. so the listener must be so frustrating. Now, when I came up with the idea of my podcast, I want I wanted a particular piece of music to be the opening and then to drip it in bits and bobs through them and then finish with the end of the piece at the end of the podcast. I discovered I needed a license for this. I needed to speak to the publisher of the of the composer. I needed to speak to the people who'd released the record. That's a frustration, which is why I ended up doing what I did and asking a very good mate of mine whether he wouldn't mind writing me some music, which he did, which is absolutely brilliant. If, and he knows this, so you won't mind me saying it, if at this point, really annoying, (laughs) because with every episode, and I've now, as I said, published or edited 25 of them, I have to cut and paste the bits of that piece together every time for each podcast. <laughs> and it's, it was catchy when I listened to it the first time in March. Now it's driving me insane. <laughs> um, so I might need him to get, um, get to write another one so that, you know, if I, if I get to 50 episodes and beyond, then I change the music or something. <laughs> yeah. 
Would you be able to tell, for the sake of the listeners, a bit about your podcast then, A Mic on the Podium, the premise of the podcast, how this came about, perhaps what you're aiming to do with the podcast, your target audiences? Well, before this COVID uh, lockdown quarantine started and the subsequent loss of work from all classical musicians in the UK and beyond, I was thinking about doing a podcast anyway. I'm chatting yeah, with my agent, Sarah. Yeah, chatting to Sarah Bruce about this, my agent and manager. And the podcast subject I was thinking of was completely different, actually, and I may one day do it. But then I got thinking and thinking hard, and I thought, well, I'm sitting here doing nothing. Hang on a minute. All conductors are sitting here doing nothing. And when in the history of the world have all of the conductors in the world sat there doing nothing? Mm, mm. So I thought, right, okay. So I looked at my phone and thought, well, there's, there's 10 people. At least I can ring up or email or text and ask, would they come on? Then I thought, right, what's the format? What's the point? How do I want to play this? And actually, the credit goes to a TV show. I don't know whether you've ever seen it. It's called Inside the Actor's Studio. Oh, yes, uh, yes. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, the premise of that show is that they basically go through from the beginning of their life through all of their works, yeah. be it TV or film or stage, get to the end, then there's normally a commercial break. And then after the break, they have to answer a set of questions. I can't remember if it's 10 or 20. And then it, the questions are thrown open to the audience. Well, of course, being a podcast, I couldn't do throwing open the questions. So originally... So I thought, well, what a great thing to do. Ask them how they started in music. You know, did you learn the piano? Did you sing? Did you go through their career? And as it, as it happened very quickly on, I realised, hey, hang on, this is great because everybody's journey is different. Everybody. There are about three or four people who went through the British choral tradition and were a chorister at a cathedral. But then from then, their career changes in different ways. So everybody's career is different. So I knew that was going to be an interesting, interesting for everybody. And there was always be something that I could talk about that would be different from person to person, whether it be the amount of travel that they do because of the jobs they had or whether, you know, what was it like to work in Norway and the United States at the same time? Why do you conduct left-handed? So I knew that there would be enough body, that, but I wanted to, to do the 10 questions at the end. And at one stage, it was going to be 20, and I'm really glad it isn't, <laughs> because the, the podcast will be far too long. I was going to do the original ones from the actor Studio and 10 about conducting. What I've ended up doing is doing five and five. So five are specifically about conducting, and five are just trying to find out what sort of human being you are. And, and I think what's happened is that over the course of it, every conductor has been really honest. One of them said it was like going to a therapy session to sort of get mm-hmm. things off their chest. They've just, they've realised, well, I was speaking to somebody and said, you know, they were telling me how, how much they enjoyed listening to other episodes and how much they enjoyed it. And I said, well, can you put your finger on why? And they said, well, actually, yeah, because it's two conductors talking to each other. So what I wanted it to be is something that would interest the casual classical music lover who's always wanted wondered what conductors do and how they think, what makes them tick, right through to the conducting geek or the conducting student who wants to know, well, how did they get there? How do they mark their scores up? How do they learn their scores? And I think it's sort of worked. I think so. And, and as it's gone on, you know, the amount of people who've said yes is about the same as the amount of people who've said no. And the ones who've said no are busy doing their other things. And, and they've been polite and said, good luck with it. Uh, and yeah, I, I just just keep doing them and hope that people enjoy it. 
Yeah. So what have you learned from doing these podcasts so far, either about your own craft or process as a conductor yourself or about the art of conducting in general or your other colleagues? I think what I've learned is that there are key key things that we all do and we all have to do. But by and large, we all do we all do things very differently. And it doesn't matter which way you come at it. If it works, it works. For instance, I think I've asked almost every conductor how they mark up their score, if they mark up their score. So do you scribble all over it? Do you write all over it? Do you use different colours like I do? And about 50-50. Some say, I'd rather not write anything in. I like my scores clean. And, and others say, yeah, I write a load of stuff in. Others say, yeah, I use the same colours as you, but I don't use them the same way. Uh, and, and that's just a snapshot of, of how everybody does it differently. And it's the same with beats, beating, how you beat time, how you show your gestures to the orchestra, how you try and transmit the emotion out from you through the orchestra and out to the audience. Everybody does it differently. You can't put two conductors next to each other and say, oh, look, they're almost the same. You can't do that. And I think that that's the interesting thing. Learning scores, people have got diametrically opposed views on that, but it doesn't stop them being great conductors. So I've learned that when you have those doubts and you think, should I be doing this? Should I be writing that? Should I be doing that gesture? I think the, that and the courage to be yourself, you know, the fact that everybody does it differently and then everybody, most people have said, you know, you've just got to be yourself and the courage of your own convictions. I think they're the two biggest things I've learned. And I've learned that, Frank, I mean, I've always said, I think conductors should be more honest and more open uh, people. Uh, it's partly because I used to be a player and, you know, players look at conductors. Some you know, I used to look at them with a very sort of tainted goggles on when I first started playing. But now, you know, I look at them and think, yes, actually, the, most of them are quite open and honest. But I do think that more of us should be like that on the podium as well. And uh, So I, that's one of the things I've enjoyed that's come out of it. And I've learned that a lot of people actually do think like that. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, how did you go about getting your conductors on the podcast and choosing your guests? Because I know you said that some of them were contacts on your phone. Did you contact agents? Do um, publicists approach you? Or uh, Well, so far, nobody has approached us. I say us. I'm talking about Sarah Bruce, my manager at La Monaco Artists and myself. What happened was at the beginning, there were people, as I, as I said, they were in my contact list, who were friends, basically, or I'd been for dinner with or been out drinking with or, uh, or even had lessons with. And so they were the first people I approached. As, as it went, uh, and as I said in the, is a, in the first, as I said in the first episode, which is a taster one, you know, the, though that list of names were friends of mine, but I wanted a more diverse cross spread of conductors as it went on if it yeah. went on and so that's when I got started asking Sarah you know would you mind contacting such and such would you mind contacting her and him and whatever and I think because you know she's she's struggling through lack of work as well and and, and it plays on our minds I think she's relished the chance to just speak to her colleagues in the artist management business and say hey you know Mike's doing this uh, I wonder whether, you know, such and such would be interested in doing it. And and from there, it's sort of, it's it's now mainly Sarah who's contacting people through their agents. I just thought, actually, there was another person I know who's working for an agency who approached me and said, have you thought about these two people that I'm looking after? 
and I hadn't, but and, and actually one of them's come on. So I'm slightly lying when I said that people haven't approached me. Yeah, it, it, it takes time. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's weird because we're all sitting here doing nothing. Um, but yeah, people are probably slower to answer to emails now than they were before all of this, all of this happened before. Um, I suspect I know why, but you know, that's, that's what it's like. Yeah, yeah. Have you got any dream conductors that you would like to interview? <laughs> uh, well, that would be telling, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> or if you could go back into the past and interview a conductor, who would you... Oh, that's easy. That's easy. But he, he, never, he never gave interviews. But if we're going to be fantasy world about this, yeah. um, I, would lo- I would have loved to interview Carlos Kleiber. But then the whole of the classical music world would have loved to have interviewed Carlos yeah. Kleiber. He did one radio interview in the 60s, I think. And from that day on, he did nothing. There's a wonderful book called Corresponding with Carlos which is a, a whole load of letters that he wrote with a guy in America. And I think there's somebody else involved that he wrote, wrote to as well. You know, he comes over as being such an interesting character. Different use of languages. He loved using words. I mean, that's got nothing to do with his music making. So, yeah, he would be my, my, dream, my dream guest, if it were possible. And interestingly, you know, what, I get lots of comments on social media from people after episodes have come out. Somebody sent me a message saying, is everybody going to say that their favourite conductor of yesteryear is Carlos Yeah, Carlos? I was thinking like you should do a tally at the end yeah. of, you know, do a tally with all the um, the conductors who everyone chooses and see which one is the most popular. That could be like a little infographic you do. So. Yes, but I mean, they got to a stage about 12 episodes in where the conductors were saying, has everybody said Carlos Kleiber? Shall, <laughs> shall I cut that out or not? And I thought, no, I'm not. I'm going to leave it in. I think people ought to, ought to hear it. Yeah, yeah I, I ought to do a tally. And also the, the favourite current conductors. And a lot of people say, oh, that's so hard, Mike. But let's get some thinking, and that's the point of it. Yeah, yeah. But I think that there is a reason, you know, why people look up to these great conductors. But what do you think makes a great conductor? What do you think are the qualities that you need? Well, where do you start? Well, <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, that really is a tough question. I think it's... It's the ability to galvanise anywhere up to a hundred, well, if you do a big choral piece, three or four hundred people in the room into, into all believing that your musical thoughts or the, you know, the thoughts that you have about this music are valid and great and wanting to come with you on a journey. Whether you can do that, whether you do that with what you say in rehearsals, which of course is 95% of conductor's work is in rehearsals whether you do that in rehearsals with with what you say or you can do it with a gesture on the spur of the moment through spontaneity and a combination of the two but if you can do that and you can get people thinking and wanting to play to the audience and perform and emote now if you can do that I think you're a great and I think it's done in so many different ways I think Interestingly, I think you can be a great conductor one week and not so great conductor the next week. And, and you know, uh, others have said it on the podcast. But I think it's that it's that ability to do that to get people to just want to perform and feel and share your vision and and then want to transmit it out front to the audience. I think that's it's a very very vague and loose answer to that incredibly no. <laughs> difficult question. No, um, no. I mean that that's really interesting what you were saying because. I was wondering, how long does it take to 
develop the relationship between the players and yourself because you might have a very short time or you might have quite an extensive time perhaps if you worked with the orchestra before if you have an extensive rehearsal period so what's that rapport building like well i mean it's difficult because your your standard yearly diary is a mixture of unless you're you know you're at the very 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 top of the profession and you can pick and choose where you go and you don't want to guest conduct anymore and i call it on the podcast the hamster wheel of guest conducting which is where you know and the reason why i call it that is because hamsters enjoy being on that wheel um, but sometimes they, they find it difficult to get off. And I think, um, so unless, unless you're at the very top and you, you avoid guest conducting, then you spend most of your year with a mixture of going back to orchestras that like you and you like them, so you have a relationship with. And that can be of a varying, you know, for instance, you know, if I went to the CBSO one week and then the BBC Phil the next week, I've conducted the BBC Phil maybe 20 times now, and I've conducted the CBSO 250 times in concert, and I was in it as a player. So there's a different, your level of relationship is different. And then the third week, I could go to, you know, the ABC Symphony Orchestra, wherever that might be, for the first time, and you've got to start forming relationships and trying to work out what makes the orchestra tick in, in a nanosecond after you put that beat down for the first time. You don't, you don't even know when they're going to play. You put the downbeat, you do the upbeat, do the downbeat, and then you're waiting for something. You don't know when it's going to be. It will be after the beat, because all orchestras play it to some degree after the beat. And from that moment on, your eyes should be everywhere and not in the score. And you're trying to work out what's making them tick, what, what their facial gestures are doing, whether they're enjoying it. So immediately, and I've never been on a blind date, but I'm guessing it's like that. You know, you walk, walk in the room, say hello, and off you go. And so... That can be a joy. I've done, I had a couple recently, a couple of orchestras recently where I've worked, walked in, started conducting, and thought, hey, these, these guys are good, and they're listening, and they're following, and oh, this is fun. And then it can also be stressful, very stressful. You walk in and, and, some, and some orchestras, frankly, want to fight you. And, I, and that's weird. Um, mm. I find it weird. And it's very stressful. It invades your every thought of every waking minute. You're, you're there that week. And so, yeah, you do, you do take time of varying degrees to work out the relationship and to work out what's the best way of making the concert as good as it can be. And what, it should never be about making friends because if you do that, I did it very early on in my career, I failed spectacularly. You just go, you, can't, you cannot please everybody in that room. You cannot do that because that's life. So you've just got to be yourself. You do what you do. And hope that there's a chemistry and a bond there. And most of the time, for me, there's been a chemistry and a bond there. But yeah, it's it's it really depends on the orchestra and how well you know them. Sometimes, as I said, it's a blind date. Sometimes it's like a, a wife you've been married to for many years. Mm. You were talking about reading the gestures of your players, and it reminded me of one of the questions that you ask your fellow conductors about the triangulation, I suppose, the different aspects of conducting your stick technique, and then there's the physical gestures, and then that chemistry between you and the players. So what proportion would you say in your conducting is each different component, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can put a finger on it because it changes from orchestra to orchestra. Okay. Uh, and it changes from situation to situation. 
uh, you know, if, as I said, if you go into a guest, go into an auction for the first time as a guest conductor, you put that beat down and you, do, you have no idea when they're going to play. That nanosecond that after they've played, you don't even think about it. You think, right, they play there on my beat. So that has already happened. And then, you know, I would normally conduct as I would normally conduct. I wouldn't think about it. And then you come to something specific like a, a subto piano where the whole orchestra's got to drop dynamic. And you might do your normal subto piano gesture and nothing really happens or it happens less than you want it to. So you think, okay, right, I've tried that, that tool in my box. Maybe next time I'll try tool B or tool C or tool D or varying degrees. What is it that they respond to? And I think that what's interesting about that is that my view of conducting is that you give the musicians the gesture that they need to perform to the best of their ability and for them to feel comfortable. And you do not stand up there doing basically a choreographed dance dance move to a piece of music. <laughs> but there are, you laugh, but there are some conductors I'm convinced have thought, that gesture re- looks really good. I'm always going to do that there. Mm. Uh, well, if you, yeah, do that you, there, if, that. if you do that there and the orchestra ignore you, what's the point of doing it? Do, do something that helps the orchestra. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, in, that's interesting. Did you see the, the Maestro BBC reality TV series a few years ago? Yes, I did. Yeah. Celebrities. And it was yeah. really interesting because Craig Revel Hallward, and I mean, obviously because of his dance background. So basically mm. at the beginning, well, when he started the process, he kind of had all the movements preempted and he just was basically doing a choreographed dance and then Mark Elder was saying to him, look, we know you can dance, we know you can move, now what we want to see is you just being you and just being your authentic self and actually being more responsive towards the orchestra. So that's why it's absolutely true. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm convinced there I'm you know never gonna name names, but I'm convinced there are some conductors that I've seen, both live and uh on things like YouTube and other places, you think yeah, you've practiced that gesture. Yeah. Uh, that's all very well if the if the orchestra is completely ignoring them. Well, then you know, fine, just do your gestures. But you know, in a normal position, you would want to do something that helps the orchestra. Yeah. Um, and or keeps the ride of the piece exciting. You know, if you think, well, actually, if I just just do you know, so all of this, a lot of this happens subconsciously. If I do this gesture, the, the horse might go faster. It might get more excited. Or yeah, it's an analogy I often use is that it is a, like riding a horse and you should be holding the reins light, very lightly, but you must be holding the reins. Yeah. Um, and most of the time you, you're enjoying the ride. Now and again, you have to grab the reins to stop the horse running after a rabbit or <laughs> getting frightened. Mm-hmm. But most of the time you just you're gently holding and enjoy the ride and try and make the ride as exciting as possible for the audience's sake. I don't know how I got onto horses, but anyway, there we go. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's, that's really interesting. When you have the younger generation of conductors and then seasoned conductors as well, so it must be really interesting to get that nice cross-section. And you were saying also that you wanted to have a more diverse mix too. So, mm. yeah. Is that one that's of the right. ways that you'd like to see the podcast going? Well, I'll be honest, I'm really, really, uh, what's the word? fastidious about the order that they've come out in mm-hmm. um so I, as i said in the first taster episode you know the first eight of people i knew of course i had to think about how, what order to put them out in but as now as as we ask more and more people and i get the answer yes well i'm playing with orders so that i don't have three middle-aged guys from the uk one after another or three younger people from you know so i, I try and mix it up so that 
I might get somebody from Russia, then an English guy who's from the core tradition. And then I'm just trying to think of eight in a row that I can tell you about. And then, you know, somebody who's only in their early 20s who won a competition. And then I've got uh, a French contralto, and she didn't start conducting until she was much later in her career. So you, you don't listen to her episode and think, oh, this is very similar to last week. Um, yeah. And I, I generally tend to decide that quite, quite a long way out and then hope that the interviews go well. Uh, I also try and not have two mega long episodes back to back and try and mix them all up. And so I, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. And we have spent a lot of time with me saying, oh, you know, I really would like, you know, I'd like a Finnish person to come on. I'd like um, somebody who played the trombone. I'd like, well, actually, I had that early on. And the same with, with female conductors and the same with conductors from different ethnic backgrounds. I think it's important that yeah. I, have, I have them in there. Which I think uh, is so as, important with, you know, absolutely. news. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a touchy subject and a tricky subject, especially with things in the news, as you say. Yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, it's interesting. That contralto I was talking about is Natalie Sturzman, who's yes, a yes. French uh, conductor. Amazing and, singer too. Yes, incredible singer, incredible voice. And her answer to, what, uh, to the question, uh, what would you change about being a conductor mm. is w- one of the best answers I've, I've yet heard and because it's so personal but this is well the, the answer was she wanted people to, to, to drop the word female when talking about female conductors mm. she just said I'm just a conductor um, which was a very simple way of, of talking about the whole business and none of the four female conductors <laughs> well I'm using that phrase because uh, I'm trying to make my point here yeah, yeah. none of them have talked about uh, inequality um, they just wanted to talk about making music and conducting which is brilliant that's all I wanted to to do with the in, in the podcast but it's a subject that has to be broached and talked about and I thought her answer was superb in that way it was basically a way of saying you know this is a subject that's hot on it's a hot topic in the classical music world but please just stop calling us female conductors. I'm a conductor. So yeah, diversity is important and episode order is important. And and yeah, I really think about it hard. Yeah. How did you get into conducting? What were your earliest musical memories as you, you often ask your guests? And um, was this something, because I know you originally were a violinist. And so yes. were, you con- were you doing conducting on the side as well? Or did you study conducting at college? Or uh, I did... I think the first time I conducted was probably, as I said earlier, I composed a bit. Yeah. Um, and when I went to music college, I wanted to be a first study violinist and a second study composer or even joint first study. So I think the first time I conducted was probably one of my own pieces when I was 15 or 16. And then when I got into music college uh, and uh, went to Birmingham Conservatoire, I was a joint first study violin and composition. And again, I had to conduct one of my own pieces. And, and then I... I realised there was a one-year course you could study and get an extra set of letters after your name. It was a diploma in conducting one-year course with Jonathan Delmar, who most people will now know as the as the the man who edited the Berenwright Urtext edition of Beethoven and very many other Urtext editions of things. He spent years of his life in dusty libraries in Europe looking at Beethoven scores and trying to work out what he actually wrote, not what people thought he wrote mm. but yeah he was he was in charge of that course at the conservatory and I, I did a year there and I learned how to how to learn score how to mark up a score 
And in those classes, it was two pianos uh, uh, one, and one person conducting. The, the pianos were not played by pianists. They were played by the other conductors. Mm-hmm. And so Jonathan would, you know, you'd walk in and Jonathan would say, right, um, who's going to start? So you know, if, if you weren't conducting, you would then assign which part from the full score you had to play. Now, because I was a violinist, I never got violins and flutes, ever. I hardly ever got the bass line because, you know, I'm a musician. I should be able yeah. to read the bass line. And play so the you always line. got a transposing instrument? Always got, yeah. <laughs> so regularly I'd be on horns and core anglais, so your eyes are darting about score. Yeah. I'm trying to work out which, uh, or I'd get clarinets and trumpets, or I'd get, you know, something like that. Uh, and so that was, it, it was a very, very good course, and I passed. Uh, and then, but still all I wanted to do was be a professional violinist. And then... Um, it was probably actually I could probably see the poster. It's in my room. There's a poster. It's the basically no wallpaper. It's just posters of things I've conducted, mm-hmm. uh, and I can't see it. But I think it was in 1996. I'd started playing with an amateur orchestra because I was a second violinist, and I mm-hmm. wanted to carry on playing first violin a bit. So I led an amateur orchestra in Birmingham, and part of the deal was I got to play a concerto once every two years or something, which was great. And then sitting in the pub after rehearsal one day and the conductor said to me, you used to study conducting, didn't you? I said, yeah, I did a year. And he said, well, I've double booked myself for a concert in a year's time. Do you want to conduct it? And I said, yeah, great. They didn't ask what the program was. or And it was Brahms' Tragic Overture, Poulenc Organ Concerto and Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. And I had a year to learn them. So I just, I remember standing backstage and the orchestra had gone on. And normally when I was a soloist, I was... I was ill for a week with nerves when I was had a concerto to play. And I was stood backstage and I wasn't nervous at all. I was about to conduct my first ever orchestral concert. And I wasn't nervous. Not, well, not in a bad way, not in a body rackingly bad way. I was excited. But, mm. And I went on and it went well. And from there I thought, hey, this is fun. So I started conducting more and more amateurs. And, and then eventually, I think it was a couple of years later, after Simon Rattler left the CBSO, um, the orchestra were doing quite a lot or starting to do more and more family concerts and schools concerts. One of the players said, why are we paying all this money for people to come in and conduct these things when maybe there's somebody in the orchestra who's got more of a vested interest in these concerts and was good enough to do them? So we had a, a conducting day, I think that was in 99, and we literally drew straws, Annabelle. The chief executive came in with 10 straws in his hand and we literally drew straws. There were 10 of us who said we'd like to have a go and I drew the last one out. So I got on to that conducting day by drawing the last, the final, the final important straw and we could conduct anything we liked for an hour with the CBSO and then you've got a choice. Do you conduct something that you know that they can play without looking at you? Or do you conduct something that they don't know very well and have to look at you? And I went for the latter. And I went for Nielsen's Second Symphony, which they hadn't played in seven years, and just went for it. And at the end of it, two of us got picked out. And they said they gave us a concert each. And the other guy decided it wasn't for him. And I, and I loved it. And it sort of snowballed from there. I then went and studied with Yorma Paneler for two weeks. I was asking all sorts of conductors for lessons and ideas and advice. And, and it, yeah, just snowballed from there, really. Talking about asking for advice, what is, I suppose, the greatest piece of advice you've been given for your conducting career? And what advice would you give to younger conductors looking to enter the profession? Oh, that's difficult. 
I can't think who would have said this to me, but at some point, somebody would have said to me, Mike, be yourself. And much like all advice you're given, be it by a teacher or a parent or a grandparent or even a friend, sometimes that advice doesn't hit home then. It hits home later. And it hit home to me when I, you know, I went, as I said earlier, I went somewhere and was trying to be everybody's friend and trying to please people. And it just, I just crashed and burned spectacularly. And I came back and thought, yeah, you're right. Just be yourself. From that moment on, I've just been me. And you know, I, can, I can't think of many places where I've crashed and burned since. I've just been me. And there's enough conductors and enough orchestras out there for you to have a very happy and, and successful career with people who are going to like you. To young conductors, I would say just, well, first of all, be yourself. Yourself. <laughs> um, yeah. But secondly, be a sponge. Be as absorbent of all information as possible. Go to as many rehearsals as you can of other, pe other people conducting. And I do mean as many people as you can see, because, frankly, you learn as much, if not for more, from the bad ones than you do from the good ones. Speak to orchestral players they will give you a very one-sided and sometimes blinkered view on what they think of conductors. I can tell you that now because I used to be one of those one-sided blinkered people. <laughs> um, but speak to them because it's a resource that, you know, that never fails to give you advice and, and good sound advice and you know, absorb everything. Try not to say no too often to things because, you know, you can learn as much by doing a, a concert of West End hits as you can by conducting Beethoven Seven. You never stop learning, ever. I think one of the, the best pieces of advice I could use from the podcast to give to those students is, is to remember where you are in the grand scheme of things. Uh, I think it was Martin Brevins who said this. He said, you know, if, if you stand in front of an orchestra and you're 23 years old or 25 years old, you've only been conducting for six, seven, eight years, if that. The people you're conducting in front of you have probably started when they were four or five, and some of those people are now in their 60s nearing retirement. Remember that. Remember that you're a long way behind in, in the amount of wisdom and the amount of knowledge, the amount of everything. You're, way, you're miles behind. And so be open to everything that they give you and be, and, and be absorbent and be a sponge. Just absorb everything that you can. And don't be, so, don't be too arrogant at that stage because, you know, in technical terms, you're a child compared to them. So I think that that's so, there's some, you know, important things. But I mean, so much advice you can give to a young conductor. Um, mm. uh, and yeah, I mean, that's what makes it fascinating. You know, I'll be fascinated by it until whatever, when, until I'm not here anymore. It's just endlessly fascinating. I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And listen to mm. your podcast for more advice, for great advice. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, everybody's advice is different. You know, it's the same with teaching, isn't it? Um, teaching anything. Uh, you know, you can go to two different teachers and they'll give you two completely different ways of getting there. But it's probably through their own experience and, their, and, and, and it means that it can happen. Your whole life experience is based and formed on taking bits from one person, another bit from another person, another bit from another person, and just forming them in your mind and, and working it out for yourself. Yeah, it is fascinating. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I, I think the, the podcast has made me even more fascinated by it. And that was my discussion with Michael Seal. And you can listen to his podcast, A Mic on the Podium, wherever you like to get your podcasts. 
Well, thank you for listening once again, and I hope that you'll be able to join me next time when I will be speaking to pianist, uh, singer, producer, arranger, and musical director Dominic Ferris. It was a really varied and interesting conversation that we had a few weeks ago, not only just talking about classical music. So if you're into your musicals, or indeed if you just love music in any form, I think that you're going to find that conversation really interesting. So do keep your eyes peeled for that episode next week. There's lots of other interviews that I've done over the last 18 months or so, talking to some brilliant artists and creatives within the classical music industry and beyond. So please do have a listen to those if you would like. Meanwhile, please do stay safe and I hope that you'll be able to join me next week. Bye for now.